welcome to the latest episode of Rallon's Recap. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by sports writer Ben Coles from the Daily Telegraph. Ben, thanks a million for taking time out to come on the show. And how are you today? No problem at all. Yeah, very good, very good. Happy to uh, happy to be here. Yeah, well, let's let's get straight into it. So, obviously, a lot has happened both on and off the pitch from a sporting sense. And with rugby, there's been a lot of stories, as I said, on and off the pitch. Most recently, now it's been back to normal with what's been happening on the pitch. But just say before we got back to normality, i.e. games being contested, teams back training, like what was it like, especially say over in the English game, there was a lot of kind of speculation the way that would be run compared to say the Irish teams would be different to obviously what would be over in England, but how was the general reaction to the rugby world with the COVID-19 changes that were both forced on and off the pitch? Yeah, it's such a, um, it's almost funny thinking back on it now and, and that degree of uncertainty that we had where we just didn't know when we were going to get games back or even at one point how clubs were going to sort of manage themselves financially through this period and and what was interesting was that while in in France they, they pretty much cancelled the top 14 really early I think it might have even been back in March or April I think they just realized that the season wasn't going to happen and, and while in the pro 14 as well they were they were pretty quick to to act with suspending the the season in, in the premiership there was uh, almost instantly instantly like a desire to to get back, to get back to playing, to get games back as, as soon as possible. I remember Darren Child, the, the chief executive of the Premier Rugby, basically coming out and saying, we want to be the first sport sort of back, um, back playing matches, which the more you think about it, I mean, obviously that did not happen. <laughs> rugby was yeah. rugby was one of the last sports. Um, I, I mean, in England, like way after cricket and way after football to come back. But even but even that the idea of it seems kind of kind of outlandish because there's so much that um that, that was going into actually getting the games back on in the first place. And, and rugby is such a, a tricky sport to manage in terms of like your contact levels and training and, and all of those aspects. That it was it was it, it seemed such an odd claim at the time. But but that being said. The Premiership had to basically the Premiership had to have these games back because the financial sort of well being of these clubs really depends on it. Like that, that's why we haven't seen like a shortened season or or sort of some games missed out, or, or and that's why the possibility of sort of cancelling the season altogether and just accepting that there was too much going on with COVID was never really on the table in the Premiership. It's because the money was so important to the clubs, not out of greed just to sort of keep going and to stay afloat, especially the money coming from, from BT Sport, the, the broadcaster. So, so now we've got games back. It's, it, everything sort of feels normal in a very odd way in that we do have matches and they are on TV and we are sort of analysing them and we, there's, there's stuff to write about. But at the same time, what an insane year. And, and there, there must have been times where the Premiership clubs were really sweating about their long-term futures as well, just because there was a real concern about from the financial sort of areas that were, that were sort of coming up with COVID. So, yeah, it's been, um, I think, from, from that aspect, in years down the line, we'll probably study it and look back on it with sort of wide-eyed curiosity it, as in how close were some clubs actually getting to, you know, like being in major trouble, really. 
Hmm. The year that's in it and the facts, it almost feels like two seasons merged into one. You had the drama obviously unfolding with the Saracens investigation and relegation, obviously. Then like you think of COVID happening, the doubt over the league, the future, as you said, some clubs under a huge amount of pressure uh, financially, I suppose even from a player point of view, you had the big Tuolangi um, transfer in the thick of it. And then on the flip side of that, when you actually go back to rugby, you had the likes of Exeter. A lot of people were excited about them coming back. Bristol as well with the new signings. Like from a point of view of like rugby and folks and what's happened on the pitch, they've kind of crammed all the games. It's not been like, say, the Pro 14 where it's just the two games into the playoffs. It's like it was with the Champions League in football. It's just a game every three or four days, get them done and dusted. Has there been any drastic changes? Because they've, a lot of these teams have got new faces in. They've had now time for coaches to implement two months' worth of training and tactics in. Have you found anything noticeably different about, say, some of the top teams vying for those playoff positions? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's been remarkable just, just because I, I think just the main the main sort of difference in terms of the actual games that you, you mentioned have sort of they're, they're having three or four days apart, and so obviously there are regulations regarding um, sort of player welfare player welfare in terms of the actual number of minutes that players can play within a week, and they can't start three games in a week, and, and that has led to a number of mismatches, such as I mean the, the weekend just gone by is an absolutely perfect example of that because I, I think in pretty much every game. Apart from Bath v Wasps on on Monday, on the bank holiday, over here in England, um, it, it, there were just mismatches in in all of the other games. Sale against Bristol should have been in an ideal world, given how the season was going. Second v third, or all, all like both teams at full strength, precious like points on offer in terms of who was going to try and come second by next to Chiefs, and and yet because of the situation with the with the games and with the the amount you need to rest players, Bristol basically sent up a second string and they got wallops. Now, they had to do that, or Pat Lamb felt that he had to do that, given the way the other fixtures are panning out. And and sort of, you've almost got coaches sort of trying to look at the calendar and, and picking and choosing when they can possibly win a game. or, or eat. And then when there's a game where they might not have such a strong chance, like Bristol traveling to sale, just sort of accepting it's not going to happen and, and putting out a second string. So you you have got matches taking place. The games are being shown on TV. Fans are able to like watch their team and see how their team is doing. But you're not necessarily getting the product that you want because the quality isn't there because you're not getting both teams out on the pitch at the same time at full strength. And, and funnily enough, that was what made Bath against Wasps on Monday so fascinating because you actually had two teams who were fully loaded, absolutely, with a lot on the line because they're both in contention for the top four. And it was great. You actually had a contest. Like, it, it was absorbing. Like, you knew that one team wasn't going to steamroll the other. And I think if we got to the point where we're sat here and we're really appreciating the fact that one of the six games in the Premiership is a contest, then then is this a, is this a good product? And, like, is this something that is meant to get people excited channel five you have to have a bit of sympathy for because they've been showing games free to air here in the uk they're showing a a game one game per round 
Um, and I think the, the two games they've had, they had like Irish against Northampton Saints, London Irish has had against Northampton Saints, where Irish put out a second string and, and were eventually thumped. And, and I can say this with with plenty of conviction because I was there watching it and, and the first half was one of the worst first halves of professional rugby I think mm. I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not and I'm not saying that to be to be mean. It it was astoundingly poor from both sides, both sides who had, who had heavily rotated their teams. And, and then Channel 5 last weekend had, had sales sort of put, hammering a, a weak Bristol side. Like that's not going to be the kind of, it's not the advertisement that Premiership Rugby wants for their, for, to like attract new fans because nobody wants to see that. You want to see tight games like you saw between Bath and Wasps. But you sort of backed into a corner because you need to play these matches to... Um, to, you know, to complete the season and, and to get enough revenue in from TV. It's it's a proper vicious circle. Um, and, and to add to your point about stuff on the field that we, we've seen that is different, I, I think, yeah, because players were able, because players' contracts started on June 1st, um, you have seen players move mid-season, which has been very odd. So you have had Manu Tuilagi and Sale and Johnny May going back to Gloucester and Semi Rajaraja and, and Carl Sinclair um, sort of popping up at Bristol, which has been great, actually. I think it's added sort of a new level of intrigue to it because it is almost like at the start of a new season, except you've got the unusual case of a team like Bristol, for example, getting one of the best players in Europe in Rajaraja to suddenly strengthen their their um, their backline at, at a key time, which is, which is brilliant. Oh, on the flip side of that, you've got a team like London Irish who have been who have lost a lot of sort of tight five forwards during this spell players players have left the club um and and on top of that have a lot of second rows injured and a lot of front rows injured and, and therefore just aren't able to compete with the other teams up front and, and are therefore basically unable to win matches because they haven't got a pack that's that's properly able to compete at this level so so for some clubs it, it, it's been great and for some clubs it's it's sort of derailed their season, a season which was, like you mentioned with Saracens, already a bit of a mess anyway, because there's no, there's been no relegation mm. since January, and 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 so the whole season, the whole season felt odd anyway because of that, um, and then and then you had COVID, which has sort of made, which has definitely helped, uh, has it helped more teams than it's hindered others, possibly, yeah, I'd, I'd say maybe it has. I'm, I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about Sale, thinking about Bath, who, who until until um, the game against Wasps were unbeaten and, and were sort of thriving from the work they'd done in lockdown and, and from bringing in Ben Spencer from Saracens at Scrum Half. Like they've been like in, for some clubs, it's worked out, but, but there are teams like Irish where it, it really hasn't. So it's it's a real it's a real mixed bag, really. And I suppose one just the last things on the the English side of things is. Ultimately, Saracens at the moment, and credit to them, they have they they keep referring to it as players and coaches that this is just they're using the league games as a fine tune for that big game with Leinster as they coaches are calling the last dance, their kind of their final last go at uh, roll at the die, so to speak. And I just with the fallout, you'd know better than say most Irish people who have been kind of looking from afar and reading articles, reading quotes. 
like how did the league um take to that news that they were basically they were cheating the system because there was always that two three years where people were always putting question marks um to one side how they developed such a big squad both through the academy but then also albeit through massive signings like i know there was a lot of resentments say at the top side of things with exeter like have they tried to do anything to build bridges in the meantime or is it very much they've kept themselves to themselves and have kept the kind of us against the rest of the world mentality that to their credit in the past has served them well results wise but maybe now when they're kind of in need come back to bite them yeah i, I think it's more the latter i, I think they sort of there's that's not to say there hasn't been sort of signs of contrition over what's happened, but but I'll always I always remember when they got the first points deduction, uh, and then they, to their credit, they went they went away to Kingsham and they played Gloucester and and they had they were excellent and and they won really convincingly and um, Alex Anderson, their their sort of assistant coach, was being interviewed by BT Sport and it was the, obviously it was the first game after everything had happened, so you knew what the questions were going to be about. And I think he said something like, "He, oh no, he he quoted Taylor Swift and said, hey, haters going to hate.'" And everyone <laughs> I swam. remember that. Yeah, everyone was just like, "Well, that's not if if this is meant to be like you know the big oh we're really sorry we've done this it's not going to happen again we, we don't want our legacy to be tainted that then that wasn't a brilliant start to to that sort of pathway mm. back to to being accepted. Um, I. I, I I think what what's interesting about it is you we were looking at sort of photos of them earlier celebrating their European Cup win um, last year over Leinster and and you're just looking at the photos of it and I get that the the European Cup isn't the Premiership and the same rules don't apply but you do wonder whether that whole sort of period has just been tainted so much that that we will always feel a little bit funny about it. Um, there's a lot of sympathy for the players who, who didn't really know what was going on. I, I spoke to Ben Spencer just after he joined Bath, and and he was and he was talking about the actual sort of timeline timeline of events, which basically meant that he he got off the plane from Japan, having been in Japan for a week for the Rugby World Cup final as as cover scrum half cover, yeah. and and the day they got back, everything sort of kicked off and everything went to hell. And and I think for them it's been. I think for the actual players who sort of, who sort of went involved in the dealings with Nigel Ray, and even those players, I don't think fully knew that what they were doing was illegal. I think that's been really hard because similar kind of thing. There's almost like a black mark next to everything they've achieved um, during those last couple of years. I mean, that's why if you if you go to Allianz Park, the the Premiership trophies in the last two seasons or the last two titles that they've won during this period where they were found in breach of the salary cap are, are hidden from view but they're not allowed to be on public display like that that's the that was part of the the judgment from premiership rugby when they um relegated the club which is which is almost hilarious like, i'd love to know where they are they're just in like a broom cupboard somewhere like gathering <laughs> dust like, like what's like what, what do you do imagine working so hard to win a trophy to win two trophies that you then can't even display because because of what you've done, it, I, I, I think it'd be really interesting how how we feel about Saracens maybe in a year's time after they've done their season in the championship. Because I think there will be a lot of intrigue in, in sort of how their championship season goes. Um, mm. Not not because they'll struggle, but just how they sort of develop in that period. I, I was at the 
their game against Gloucester last Wednesday, um, when they essentially played a team that, that looked like the team that is going to play most of their championship games next next year, apart from Elliot Daly outside centre. So, so it was loads of loads of young guns who there's a lot of excitement about, like Manu Vinopolo and Andy Christie, and um, and some new signings in there as well, like Juan Pablo Sosino and those kind of guys. And, and it was almost like a glimpse into the future. You were looking at Saracens' team made up of a couple of veterans, but a lot of like rising stars. And and I think it will be easy for people to to sort of watch on with interest and, and maybe that'll that'll generate a bit of a buzz back. But but at the same time, if they come back for the, the 2021-22 season and they're back in the playoffs and they're going for the title again, then I think that sort of bad blood will will still linger. I mean look at Harlequins. We still we still even though it's been so long now since Bloodgate, there's still like a and 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 the whole sort of operation at Harlequins is completely different to, to back then. And there's only yeah. a couple of players left in the squad. I, I think there's still like a lingering sort of raised eyebrow sort of thing of what happened. And and with Saracens, it'll probably take. And, and Harlequins, you know, didn't even go, go on to like win silverware, and whereas Saracens did. So I think I know. I, I think it will take a while. I think it'll take a while for people to completely move on. And 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 it just it, it's you almost given how crazy COVID's been, you almost forget it happened, but, but it, but it did. Yeah. And, it, and it was one of the biggest stories in English rugby history. Mm. And as leading on to that, like the big, big doubt, especially you mentioned there with the French teams, um, like earlier, a few months ago, at the very beginning of COVID, I had Mike Prendergast on, who's Rassen's attack coach. He was saying how, you know, the French do their own thing. The English have their own views, Irish, Scottish, etc. Everyone was all on different pages. And as you said, they scrapped the league, yet they somehow then managed to commit back to the Champions Cup fixtures. And now what faces us in a few weeks' time is teams have gone back to back to back of high-level rugby, having to do loads of rotations to suddenly going into that knockout stage and like looking at it, you look the likes of Saracens are there, Exeter as well are there. You've got an all French um, side. You also have Ulster as well involved. Like, how is there? Is it too hard at the moment to kind of have any predictions as to how those games will go? Like, I know from a Leinster Saracens point of view, I'd be expecting that to be a very close game because, by all accounts, if you put Saracens strongest fifteen and Leinster strongest fifteen, there's not much between them. But like, are you? Do you still feel like this is going to be the level we're used to from a Champions Cup knockout type of rugby? And as we previously discussed, there was loads of transfers. What could have been tarnished, whatever. Do you still feel it'll be at the level um, of quality than previous years? Yeah, I think so. I, I, it's such a big game for Saracens because it's it's the only game that matters, mm. and, and it's been the only game that has mattered for them since since the start of the year before COVID. Um, they, they rolled out close to the first team against London Irish on Monday and and weren't entirely convincing. I think it's fair to say. I mean, they won forty points to twelve, but it was against a team, London Irish team, essentially full of kids. Well, I, apart from Augustine Creevy, he's I don't think anybody can call him a kid at thirty five. No. But but otherwise it was a really raw Irish team and, and a really strong Saracen side and and they didn't particularly fire. So they'll they'll be able to get one more hit out um uh, this week or, or at, at some point over the next couple of weeks. And and I think Mark McCall will really be looking to see something there because 
I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be tough. I, I think Leinster are going to be such a huge challenge. The way Leinster have played this season, sort of pre-COVID, was was extraordinary. I know Leinster have been excellent now for many years, but I, I think that was almost Leinster at their peak. Particularly how they managed um, sort of periods without the international players around. I, th- I thought it was was really exceptional from afar, um, and and so therefore there's sort of an emotional an, an emotional pull on this fixture for Saracens because of things like Brad Barrett leaving at the end of the season, who's been the, just the heart and soul of everything they've done for, for over a decade. And um, But at the same time, I, I think they're going to find it really tough. I think they're going to find it really tough. And, and uh, I'm fascinated to see how, how the French sides get on as well, having, having played like no, no rugby for so long. Um, particularly, I, I, th- I think Toulouse would have been such a strong uh, candidate before before lockdown and before things went um, and I'd love to see them sort of get through but but I think if the way the the draw pans out you might end up with it I think it could be Toulouse you've got Toulouse against Ulster haven't you so you could end up with yeah. Toulouse against Exeter for example um, which would be which would be incredible but because yeah. for Exeter this is this is the leap I think this is the season that they're viewing is the one where they've they're going to get it right this time and they're going to go deep and they're going to be competitive in Europe. And and they've been flying in, in England, I should add. But they've been the best team in the Premiership by a country mile. And and I think they proved that recently with that win over Sale Sharks. That they just are they just are the best side. And and now if they can back that up in Europe, um, th- then I think people will probably respect them maybe even a little bit more outside of, of England than they do already. I think people accept that they're a very good very good premiership side but, but I think until you do it in Europe you don't get that wider that wider acclaim but but I think they've, they've never stood a better chance of doing that than, than this season than this weird season yeah no for sure and I'd agree with that with like Exeter and even this whole season and also especially in recent weeks like um, some of the rugby they were playing against Sale was absolutely superb it looked like they hadn't even had four or five months off the park but I definitely do feel like from just a even an Irish point of view, if you're looking at Leinster being the standard bearers, if you're saying, you know, Exeter, a threat to you, it's very much a case. And I'm sure Rob Baxter and all the, the staff and players there would be under the same impression that they need to now step up in Europe because they've been playing so well domestically. They've won domestic titles, but when it's really come to the big games in Europe, they've somewhat flattered to deceive her didn't perform as well as they probably could have. So I'd say it is a it is a big moment for them and especially obviously coming up against um common faces in Northampton say. So that's probably a tie that maybe has gone under the radar a little bit, but I'd say that would be a, a feisty enough affair because I'm sure if you win that, the people whoever come out on top of that will be fancying their chances. Especially when one of the biggest things and I think this is what maybe would take a little bit away from Leinster's advantage, say at home to Saracens, is the fact that there is no crowds at these games and that like rather than having 50,000 people screaming, being behind you, there's absolutely no one there bar about 50 to 100 medical officers and executives. So it's a different vibe. But I suppose from your point of view, more kind of off the pitch, like how, how has that been? Like how has coaches how have players reacted to it is it very much a case where they just get on with it are they still struggling to adjust to you know basically coaches 
being able to hear what's going on the pitches, being able to hear what the calls are. Very much going back to like club rugby type stuff where there was no one there bar the 15 v 15 and the ref in the middle. Like how was the response to that being? Because I know um, from talking to a few people involved, say with Leinster and a few other clubs coming back in Ireland, they found it not difficult, but they found it just a bit strange and a bit of taking time. Uh, to get used to yeah it, it's been um it's been fascinating actually and I, I think uh, i mean we always love sort of being able to like listen in on on dialogue between players and referees or just the amount of, of sort of chat going on around the scrum or, or line out I, I think it's uh, I, I think it's actually been really interesting and and, and even just in, not just around the set piece either but it, just an open play i was i was I was at a game recently and I was laughing with Sarah Mock- Mockford, the editor of, um, of Rugby World, because we, we were just watching a passage of play and we, and we heard a player yell out, just whack him. And you were like, <laughs> well, well, yeah, of course. Like, oh, like, of course you should say that. Like, because, you know, you, you say that at all levels of rugby, but it's just weird hearing it when it's like a senior, a senior game, like in the heat of the moment, because you never, you've obviously just never, you never get that access. You never sort of, you never sort of hear that. I I, I wonder. Uh, you'd you'd think that by now that players would be used to the crowd noise, but I think for, I think for certain for certain clubs, if you've got the kind of ground where opponents can can be easily intimidated by the atmosphere that you create because you're you're sort of renowned for that, then then I think that is obviously a loss, and and you can't really recreate that through pumped in crowd noise like like Bath Bath this week on Monday had a couple of malls malls um, from lineouts deep in Wasps twenty two, and, and and over the PA they sort of pumped in like a come on you Bath chant and it, and it just sounded terrible, yeah like it just to, to the point where those of us who were in the ground were sort of sat there like eyebrows raised thinking God oh, it's just not it's not it's not enough to do that to like. Yeah, probably like create the, that much of an atmosphere, and and a club like Gloucester as well, like Kingsham is is still a really intimidating place to go, and, and a tough place that opponents don't like to go to, especially if you know um, Gloucester are on top of you. So if so, I think for some clubs it, that's going to be really tough. But from from our point of view, to get a greater insight into like the inner workings of like set pieces and, and defensive calls has been has been really interesting. Obviously, we'd rather fans were there because it's always a bit weird turning up to a stadium with nobody in it. But, but, but yeah, it's certainly been um, certainly been an interesting few weeks so far. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'd just looking a bit further ahead, just obviously the international side of things. Like people were excited for Lions Tour that's still up in the air, and we've got like last year's, well, this year's Six Nations happening um, in several months' time, hopefully. Like one of the big things I took from the last few months, like from an English point of view, was like you'd you'd be more in the know than I would, but like I remember seeing Dylan Hartley's quotes about Eddie Jones. They made a big few waves here. Um, from just an Irish readership point of view, we all found it very interesting to see what a a former captain of his country would say about the regime albeit saying Eddie was the best coach he's had, he'd also pointed to some of the more negative traits he would also have. Like, what is the the view of England's international hopes? Because you had such a big season where you had that semi-final win over New Zealand, which in, you know, 
my lifetime I probably haven't seen a better international performance mm. and then the disappointment the following week where you just felt you never quite got going against South Africa everything that worked previously just wasn't happening on the field like where does England view itself now because it's such a important part of the cycle where you have to kind of get that year year and a half because when you get about two years out to the World Cup and Eddie Jones used to always refer to us you want to have a settled enough squad. You want to be building up caps amongst 20, 25 players. Like where does kind of England view itself on the international front heading into obviously the Six Nations and beyond that, and especially with Eddie Jones at the helm? Yeah, it's a really good question because, uh, I mean, if you, it doesn't seem mad that that, that semi-final result against New Zealand was, was still less than a year ago. Like so, so, much, yeah. has, so much has happened that, that the World Cup feels like it was almost in like the previous four-year cycle, let, let alone last year. Um, I think England in the Six Nations were going pretty well after that France, that France defeat in the opening game. I think that was a massive sort of... Wake up call, maybe uh, that you know that all right, you lost that one game to the box pretty comprehensively, but it, things weren't necessarily just going to click back into gear and you weren't going to become the side who, who had done pretty well in the, the Six Nations and under Eddie Jones, aside from the uh, the disastrous year where they came fifth and, and they just went off the rails that otherwise they'd been they'd been very competitive. And, and I think they got back to that level with, with the results that followed. Um, I think they're they're actually in a really exciting place because after the World Cup there was a, there was a lot of confusion about what Eddie Jones was was going to do and and actually what was the point in him being on a contract until twenty twenty one like that that seemed um, sort of impractical to just know that your coach yeah. is only been around for two years like you you wanted a bit more of a succession plan there now, now the fact that he signed up through to twenty twenty three he he seems as as fired up and and sort of you know, belligerent and, and direct as, as ever about what he wants to do in the job. And, and, and if I'm honest, that's when he's at his best, when, yeah. when he's sort of in that mood. And, and and he's kind of got every right to be because he's he's got a really talented group of players who who were, when you think about it, it's quite funny. Like they got they got completely humbled by by a South African scrum in the World Cup final. So what do they do? They just poach the South African scrum coach. <laughs> like yeah, I, I know when people like bang on about oh the RFU just throw money at everything. Well, well, yeah. Like in this case, they yeah. they did, and, and and the squad is um the, the squad is heaving. I, I I think is the only way to describe it when you think about for years England's. Back row was was sort of lacking quality depth, and, and now trying to pick who, who Eddie selects for a squad in the back row is is a nightmare. Like, there's so many candidates. I mean, you've got the two Curry brothers. Like, I mean, how would you leave that one of them the way they're playing for sale? Mm. Um, so I think England are in a good place, and I think uh, I, I think they'll go whenever that when we have that game against Italy. I think they'll go into it pretty confident. Um, that they, you know, will be. I can't remember the permutations for the Six Nations table off the top of my head. It's been so long, but I know that there was. That there's a chance that things can fall their way, and and beyond that, I think, I think if England, I, I, I would say this. I think if England don't win another Grand Slam under Eddie Jones, then that would be a disappointment, just because of of how much progress they made in the first four year cycle. I mean, they, they had that unbelievable un, unbeaten run in 2016 when he, when he came in, that included winning the slam. I, I think if they don't win another, 
while he's there, then it might be viewed as a bit of a letdown. And, and I realise that's a bold claim because England went like between 2013 and 2016 without winning a Grand Slam, but they're in such a better place now than they ever were during that gap and, and under Eddie Jones. I think that has to be that has to be the objective, as it does to be to get to the at least the semi-finals of the next World Cup because the squad is young enough and, and talented enough. And um, yes, Eddie works them unbelievably hard. Like there's no, there's the, I think we sort of knew that anyway, but didn't Hartley's sort of uh, book and, and his interviews around that were, were like you say, just astonishing reading because you really got a scope for how much when it came time to work, they really worked. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that has to be England's objectives and, and, and put it this way, they're in a far better place now, obviously with the Six Nations and a few Six Nations titles and the World Cup final appearance now than, than when Eddie Jones came in, like no, no question. Yeah, no fair points. And I think it is a good point that you made where if you want to maybe compare him to Jose Mourinho and his pomp when he's he's direct, he's fired up. It's it's kind of him against the rest. I think that is when he's he's at his best and when like he just feels he's got a point to prove. I definitely do feel that's when he's at his strongest and his teams tend to follow suit and perform because he seems to be that type of coach that when he's kind of radiating, whether it's arrogance or confidence or anger, he tends to be the type of coach that you know the players tend to follow suit and tend to deliver performances like that because they, as you said, he's such a figure that kind of demands that, so to speak. But yeah, I, I just add to that that I, I appreciate there have been times where some of his pre-match comments seem completely ridiculous, and and there have been others where he's definitely crossed the line. And there's the stuff with um, just Sexton a few years ago, for example. Like there have been times where it's hard to sort of defend that or, or any, any look at it with, with a bit of an eyebrow raised, but, but yeah, but you're right. That is how he sort of, that's how he, he works, I, I guess. And, and the results, well, with England, at least I think are there for really to see, even if occasionally he has uh, pushed the boundaries slightly. And just to summarize that, just one or two of the, the questions or points that some of the listeners wanted to get covered just we touched on it there, like the English domestic, the bit of the Pro 14, and then the state of the Champions Cup. Like, how do you see that kind of going over the next few weeks? Like, if you were to pick, say, a, a winner, like with England, you've pretty much got five teams in the mix at the moment. With the Pro 14, you only have the final four. And then, as I said, the Champions Cup is down to the last eight. Like, who would you be expecting to you know, lift those honours or if there's maybe a team to kind of shock shock people who do you reckon could, you know, turn a few heads in the next few weeks? Yeah, I mean, so, so England I think is easy enough. I, I don't think the top three is going to change. You'll have Exeter, Sale and Bristol and, and it's pretty much a race of fourth between Wasps, Bath and Northampton and I think Bath have been great. But Wasps are probably the form team at the moment. So let's say they get in. I think even from there, even with what Bristol have done and what Sale have done in terms of recruitment and how much progress they've made, Exeter are clearly the best team in the, in the country and, and nobody wants to travel to Sandy Park for a semi-final either. So mm. I think Exeter, Exeter win the title and they're probably due a title as well. Um, it'll be odd. It'll always be looked back on as the season where Saracens went in the frame and, and so therefore... 
maybe people won't look at it in quite the same way, but but I think they're definitely the best team going. And and it's a similar case in the Pro Four team where I'm I'm confident that that Munster can beat Leinster in a, in a one off game, definitely. But at the same time, I, in terms of that semi final, but I just think Leinster are cut above everybody else, um, mm. and they have better depth than everybody else. Like I was reading about the the possibility that guys like Dan Dan Ryan, James Ryan, and <laughs> and maybe Dan Levy and, and and a few others might not be able to play this weekend. But even if they couldn't, you know that the sort of depth is there for them to be able to win a big game. Um, so I think Exeter win the Premiership. I think Leinster win the Pro Bowl team, and, and in Europe, I think because I think Leinster is so much better than Saracens. Yeah, I, I think Leinster have probably got the best chance of winning the Champions Cup, but. I'd love Exeter to be Exeter to be in the mix, and I'd love Toulouse to be in the mix as well because I feel like they've <clears throat> I feel like they've really developed. They, they kicked on the season like we sort of hoped they would. I think that last season when they they made a deep run in Europe and they were top fourteen champions, they were very very good. But there was clearly more growth there because so much of the side was so young. They've started to show that this year. So so I think that even without the games, they could be in the mix. But but if I had to pick a winner. Yeah, pr- probably Leinster. Probably Leinster to win it in Europe again. I think they've they've got the best step. Yeah, well, you'd be pleasing the Irish listeners. I know with that. <laughs> that's true. Um, that's true. Yeah. yeah, and I'd I'd say just the one point I'd make, just even maybe from a European and even a Pro Fourteen point of view, like Pro Fourteen, I think a a team that have kind of gone on under the radar and were a bit unlucky in Europe this year as well, and obviously an Englishman's at the helm. I think Edinburgh are a team that just seem to constantly be getting better and better and their big game not so much experience but their actual performance in the big games just they just seem to be like of that kind of Saracens ilk where teams come up against them and they're just like oh this is just going to be 80 minutes of just complete war and a battle to get over the line so I think they could definitely pose number one Ulster problems in that other semi but I do think if they were to get to the final they would definitely, I think, give Leinster or Munster a, a good run for their money. And then, as I think we touched on it earlier in the show, I think in Europe, to even add to the mystery of French French rugby as a whole, whether it's going to be good or bad, that's the thing about Claremont Rassen and even Toulouse. Like, what state will they be in? Will they be... Will the French players be happy to be back? Will they have enjoyed the time off? Will they be rusty? That kind of adds to the intrigue because you only have to look through the, the three squads there left in the knockout stages and the talent is just, it's mesmerizing. So like they definitely could turn it on. But then again, they haven't played in front of fans. We know how much the French love being showmen and playing in front of fans. So yeah. could that affect them? Could that play in their favor? Could traveling away to an empty stadium kind of encourage them as opposed to discourage them in previous years? So it will, I think, be interesting, albeit we're missing crowds and the excitement that builds. There still is plenty of intrigue. And I suppose just one of the last things is, and it is something that is obviously tough to pick because whether it's on or off the pitch, we know how quickly the world of rugby can change, Ben. But one of the questions that was, I think about eight people asked, was you to give your current lines XV. Because I know Will Greenwood posted his a few months ago and there was complete uproar on Twitter. <laughs> so you might want to tread carefully, but if you want to have a stab at your starting 15, 
be my guest. He's a Telegraph columnist, so I won't say anything about Wolves. <laughs> I won't say anything about Wolves fifteen. Um, fortunately, fortunately enough, we all the Telegraph writers actually did this back in May, so it was sort of I've got something to work up. I'm not I'm not picking it out of the sky, um, mm-hmm. but I'll go I'll go through it and then I'll I'll, I'll briefly explain why why I've gone for it. So I'd have Stuart Hogg at fullback, uh, Anthony Watson and Liam Williams on the wings. In midfield, I'd have Robbie Henshaw and Manu Tuilagi, Tuilagi at 13. Um, halfbacks would be Gareth Davies and Owen Farrell. And then my front row would be Mako, Vunapola, Jamie George, Tyke Furlong, Maro Itoje and James Ryan at lock. And then uh, Josh Navidi, Tom Curry and Billy Vunapola in my back row. Um so I, so I think the main the main one for me is midfield. Obviously, if Jonathan Davies mm. is, is fit and healthy, um, then I think he definitely goes on the tour. But but there were so many there were so many sort of worries about uh, sort of what shape he was in at the start of the year when we were when we were doing Wales stuff with the Six Nations or, or when I was following Wales and the Six Nations that that you do wonder given his age um, and given his sort of injury history whether that will be a possibility. And so I guess. I guess that's me sort of preparing for the worst case scenario. Now you could have either one of the Irish centres. I, I, I just always have been a big fan of Robbie Henshaw and what he brings um, from a physicality point of view, from a defensive point of view. Um, I feel like he'll be at the right age to sort of have a massive test series as well. And I think he'll combine well with, with Tua Laggy. Tua Laggy's sort of played a lot of 12 for England recently and, and at Selchise as well. I just like him in that 13 channel. I, I just think he works quite well there. Um, I'm just thinking about the other the other contentious choices. I guess Gareth Davies over Conor Murray at Scrum Half and, mm. and I just feel that's because Davies' sort of game management has, has really improved or, or was really improving under Wales and at the end of Warren Gatlin's time his, his box kicking was better he, his organi- organisation was better but he was still he's still one of the best sort of support running scrum halves around he, he always pops up on those inside shoulders and, and it's good for good for a try good for a few tries in each tournament and I think he's he's sort of excellent in that regard um, and I guess the other one is the second row and it's probably a similar thing with Alan Wood Jones and, and Jonathan Davies like, I, I'm pretty sure Alan Wynne Jones will end up on the plane. I just don't know if he would start. I just wonder if they would use him as, as a super experienced figure around the squad and and, put, and definitely have him possibly in a match day twenty three just to turn the tide. But I think James Ryan's had such a great rise, and, and we've been talk- I feel like we've been talking about that pairing with Mario Toji in the second row since um, God going back to twenty going back to like twenty seventeen twenty eighteen, and, and so yeah. I, I can just see it. I can I can see it working um, really well. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, I think I think that's my I think that's my side. No no changes, yeah. no late change of mind. Yeah. And would you have any bolters? I was only chatting, chatting to a few of my mates about it there, and like one of my bolters was Ben Spencer from Bath. I know he hasn't quite got there with England yet. I know he subbed obviously the final, but is there any player too that you think? Oh, if if they got their chance at in a big club game or even with their international sides, they could make a late surge if the Lions tour ends up happening this summer? Yeah, I mean, Spencer's actually a really good shout it, because uh, you look at the way he's sort of 
works at Bath. He, he, he looks like a test scrum half. Like his box kicking is excellent. His organisational play is he's really good. He's not slow. Like he, he ran back an interception try against the Irish and yes, I like, like 70, 80 metres out. Like he, he has got the qualities. Yeah, it'd be interesting if he got a run with England. I mean, I, there was so much hype about Reece Samet when he was on that run of tries in consecutive games for for Gloucester. And he's he's undoubtedly special, but Wales sort of haven't Wales haven't decided to use him yet, so maybe does that mean that his chances are a bit diminished? I, I do think he's special. It'd be great to see him on the plane. Um, Keelan Doris isn't really a bolter at this point because he was so good during the, the Six Nations games, but he, he would definitely be in the squad um, mm. based off that and, and should be pushing for, for a start. For a real bolter, maybe someone like Jack Willis at Wasps, who, who has shown that under these new breakdown laws, he... Um, he was he was winning turnovers for fun anyway uh, before COVID, but but sort of post lockdown, he he's carried that form on and he's been he's been sensational. And I, I guess it wouldn't shock me if 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 because of his speciality and his expertise there that maybe he he entered the fray. Yeah, I, I think like like he said, so much changes sort of in the run up to the tour, and, and there's always a few names, but. But um, I think the Lions will be in a good place. I, I, know, I know it hasn't gone well for Warren Gatlin with the Chiefs this year in, in Super Rugby Aotearoa, but but I think they'll be I think they'll be okay. Mm. And as last thing I'll ask you, and it's it's only recently come to the fore with even like the not so much the hype, but the speculation now about like Lancaster's always been mentioned as one of the potential coaches. I saw um, Robertson from New Zealand with the Crusaders was linked there as well. He was um, quoted saying he'd be interested. Like, do you feel like that kind of left field pick could be the difference to, because I think when you look at South Africa, you pretty much know what their starting 15 is going to be, give or take, and you know exactly what they're going to bring. Like, do you feel like someone like a Robertson could be, the key difference because I know obviously Gatlin would have extensive knowledge of the game over there and obviously now being super rugby he'd improve a little bit more there but you feel like getting an outsider or someone who may know them a bit better than the kind of English or Irish coaches could be a, a key key um, appointment yeah potentially I mean I, I, I love what Scott Robertson has done sort of at the Crusaders it, He's almost been so successful at the Crusaders that it seems odd that they went for so long without winning a Super Rugby title. The fact that he's now like reeled off three on the bounce, and it would have been four if it hadn't been for um, for COVID, is um, is fascinating. Um, Funny enough, Sirian McGeekin, who writes for us at the Telegraph, had a had a column out on the weekend where he said that Robertson shouldn't actually be a coach on the tour because he doesn't know Northern Hemisphere rugby intimately enough. As in, he's not got that sort of um, that sort of in-depth knowledge about sort of players and and, and teams up here, which I thought was interesting because I hadn't really thought about it that way before. I, I'd sort of just thought about it. Well, he knows Southern Hemisphere rugby really well yeah. and Super Rugby really well. Surely he'd be an, an excellent fit. And his attacking sort of game plans um, with the Crusaders and what he's done with someone like Richie Mwanga, for example, have been extraordinary. Um, but I just, yeah, I. If it does happen, I certainly won't be complaining because I think he'll add so much. I just think it will be interesting how you sort of fit him in because I think Stuart Lancaster deserves to be on that tour. The the way the way that he's worked with Leo Cullen over the last few years at, at Leinster has been fantastic, and I'd be surprised if he wasn't. And, and then they went up well and 
well end up being a name like Robinson who who makes the cut. Um, but I'd be lying if I said that Colin by by um, Serena McGeekin had made me think differently. Partly because it's Serena McGeekin, and, and no yeah. one really no one really knows the lines better than he does. Um, so yeah, it, it, it'll be it, there. There will be a couple of high profile emissions, I'm sure, because there always are. But but I definitely think Stuart Lancaster should be on there for sure. Okay. Well, listen, Ben, that that more or less wraps it up um, from our end. So I want to obviously thank you for coming on. I know you've got a busy few weeks and hopefully an exciting few weeks ahead of you. And um, yeah, no, listen, thanks a million for coming on. Really enjoyed that chat. And um, yeah, no, listen, take care and enjoy enjoy the barrage of rugby over the next few weeks. That's the perfect word for it. It does feel that way. No, no, cheers, cheers, Richie. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to uh, put it this way. It's nice to have plenty to uh, to talk about again after a few months without much rugby. Exactly. Okay. Take care, man.